0: podcasts. A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions that could be hard for some people to hear. Some episodes may also contain explicit language, so please take care.
1: I think that as women we're always told to be quieter to not make a fuss to not you know be so emotional don't be hysterical you know like i get called hysterical like every single day it's one of the favorite words to use for any woman who's angry queenie queenie, don't drop the ball queenie queenie don't drop the ball queenie
0: queenie
1: don't drop the ball
0: Kia ora and welcome to Tell Me About It, the podcast where we've finally stopped apologising. For what? Well, everything, I think. For not being
2: male. For being angry taking so long to go to the bathroom for wanging on about everything (laughs) repeatedly. Well, tell you what, yeah, definitely. And I'm
3: not sorry for saying the word fingering at least three times over the course of this series. That probably makes it four, even in the most spurious of contexts.
0: Sorry, not sorry. I'm Noelle McCarthy. I'm Kirsty Johnston. And I'm Michelle Duff. For our final episode, we are talking to Emily Wrights, one of our favourite feminists and a big supporter of the podcast who's been a real friend to us. She's here to talk about her work and the resilience she needs to do it to be a writer and an activist and just generally a woman on the internet.
3: And being a woman on the internet takes a shit ton of resilience, actually. That is the technical um, measurement amount of it. (laughs) You need a shit ton of resilience when you're putting your words and your viewpoint in the world as a woman in this year of our Lord, 2022.
2: I don't know what you're talking about, Noelle. I mean, I think what we've found over this series is that it's absolutely fine when women write and say what they think, and they get no pushback whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, when I think back over this series and all the women I've spoken to, no
0: one's ever mentioned this to me, that it's a problem.
2: (laughs) And <laughs> No one in all your, both of your stories either, I guess. Or our personal experience, no? That's right.
3: Yeah, I'm thinking about that episode we did a few weeks ago with Golri's, Golri's Garaman. And remember Goldrie's telling us, like, how she has to vary her exits in and out of the beehive because of the death threats that she's getting simply for being a high-profile, outspoken
0: MP and woman of colour in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's just so mm. unbelievable that we've like accepted that as some kind of new normal
3: yeah it was funny wasn't it when, when she was saying it to us she was like oh yeah that you know that's just something that is kind of part of my day like it wasn't even shocking to her anymore
2: Yeah, it's so disturbing, and I guess that's one of the things we've been trying to highlight with this series, that that sort of misogyny and that kind of behaviour is not okay, and it's important that we keep pushing back in whatever way we can, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, look at Roe v. Wade in the States, eh? Like, look at that draft opinion that was leaked out of the Supreme Court, like, potentially overturning the legislation that formally, I guess, guaranteed a pregnant person's constitutional right to an abortion. It's... Like, it's actually terrifying. But it's such a complete head fuck, like, that you can have such a deeply
3: politicized opinion from the highest court in the land in America that actually, you know, represents like a limiting and a removal of body autonomy. You know, that is so radical.
0: Yeah, I think the worst part is this kind of like, this regressive sentiment isn't just contained to one nation. Like, we have politicians here in New Zealand who are opposed to abortion.
3: Mm, I feel like this has been a theme as well in the course of the podcast. You know, one minute we're looking at a different country like America and going, oh, look, that's so terrible. Next minute, it's happening here. And I think you're right. Like, it's not holding certain politicians back here in New Zealand being openly anti-abortion. Like that is actually not being met with kind of rage or terror. It's seen as being quite reasonable and normal for a mainstream politician in New Zealand.
2: Yeah, so two things. Like one, I think this really shows that our work isn't done. So you know, that's motivational. <laughs> but the other is that I think that we have to um, you know, be really careful to make sure that we don't, you know, that we don't treat it as normal because you know it's not acceptable and you know just because one person's saying that you know we 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 don't want to give these sort of hardline misogynistic views you know sort of more oxygen or more import than they deserve yeah but I don't think that we can pretend it's not happening either
0: I mean like as we've seen there's a lot of anti- Woman or anti-equality feeling, like just sitting this bubbling right there under the surface kind of ready to break out in a giant wave of backlash.
2: Yeah, that's definitely something we've heard over the course of the last few months doing this. Over and over again, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's just like feeling in the air. You know, I can kind of feel it in my ovaries, you know. It's just like it's happening.
3: <laughs> and they're sensitive ovaries, I know, so you, that they they'd are. be attuned They are, actually are right so. now.
2: <laughs> But, you know, there is also a silent majority out there, I think, and I hope, that don't feel this way, you know, that don't have these this hatred or, um, of women or, or this belief that, you know, these really regressive beliefs. And I think we saw that quite recently when that businessman, Simon Henry, you know, made those racist comments about Nadia Lim, and there was a huge kickback. Towards that,
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah,
2: there was, wasn't it? And the
3: great thing about that, right,
2: is that that's
3: $300 million written off the market value of his company in four days. Like after looking at Nadia Lim, who's like a high profile, hardworking chef and writer, you know, she writes cookbooks, she did My Food Bag, and, and he calls her this very disturbing and kind of
0: offensive and frankly weird Eurasian fluff.
3: Like, who even even says that?
0: Yeah, like, on the one hand, it was depressing and, I mean, but not surprising that he said that, but also, like, really heartening to see that response. And I think, you know, that's why we need people, like, what did you call them, Michelle? The silent majority to to keep pushing back and keep supporting people who are putting themselves on the line. Like, at this point, it's kind of not enough to stay silent.
3: And I guess, you know, the challenge for so many of us, like if we are part of the silent majority, is to figure out how to have an impact with our voices. And I think that's one thing, you know, like a lot of the women we've talked to in the course of this series have worked that out. Like they've worked out how to challenge and change systems that aren't designed for them. And they've worked out how to do that from the inside
2: Yeah, totally. When when we think back to some of the first people we talked to, like Sarah and her mum, Sandra, from the Wairarapa who are pushing back uh, against an inequitable cervical screening programme and getting more HPV tests, you know, and more Māori women to do those. That was, Mm. yeah, that was one of the first ones we did. Or my neighbour, Lily, who's doing God's work,
3: teaching boys, you know, about consent and sort of grappling with rape culture. In the classroom, or even S, remember S, like that oh, first episode legend. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. who was brave enough, like a woman who was brave enough to take her rapist to court twice and challenge that system of the victim notification form, you know, at huge personal cost to her.
0: I hadn't really thought about it like this before, but I guess they are all kind of doing kind of activism in some form in their own way, like Liz um, doing her work on yes. gender and.
2: The law the defense like, lawyer, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And like, remember Nia? Um, who was highlighting like the way that Pacific women were treated or you know mistreated at work? So many. Nia totally schooled us. I loved that. <laughs> yeah, like so, I feel like all of them, in their own way, were actually. Yeah, like striving to create change. And it's like it's just quietly happening, you know, just getting on with it around Mm. the country. And shout out to Sarah, who was the social worker, who was so amazing, you know, who
3: not only sort of made IRD accountable for their crazy child support system, which you tried to explain to us, Michelle, and I know you understood, but I
2: like (laughs) struggled with it. It took me many, many months to figure out how that system works. Yeah, so. and Sarah, who now, like,
3: <laughs> navigates families through that, like, helps them to go through that. And so, like, I feel like we've been building up to this last episode as well, you know, in all of these different stories. And we've got a guest, haven't we, Michelle, who sort of highlights all of the different things that you need in order to do this.
2: Yeah, I reckon we've picked a one Emily writes, author
3: of books, writer of articles. You might know her from the spin-off or from her Dancing with the Stars recaps on stuff. But she's also on Substack, which I can't explain.
0: What is Substack? Like it's, it's like an online forum and like a newsletter service that you subscribe to kirstie you nailed that didn't you
2: someone's learned Kirsty has gotten (laughs) better
0: she's like i was always good bitch ah
2: yeah touché
3: that's the attitude we wanted to bring into this last episode no apologies just in our power Yeah, so Emily, she's an activist, she's a mama, she's a greyhound lover, she's a cat fancier, and she is our last guest on Tell Me About It. Welcome to you, Emily.
1: Hi, it, that was such a nice intro. I've never been called a cat fancier in an intro before. <laughs> I love it. I love
3: it. <laughs> it's a very special um, adjective that I only say, that I've been wanting to use for years, to be honest. Thank you for coming, thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, it's so nice to be here. I'm really excited about the last episode and yeah. So we want to ask you
3: basically like uh, how the answer to everything. We want to ask you how you do life and how you do what Michelle was talking about, like hold two things at the same time, like on the one hand, call things out sort of, you know, full of righteousness and having that space for righteous anger in Other members of the community and creating community with your work. But then on the other hand, making sure that you sort of don't get consumed with hopelessness and rage as well, so that you don't end up sort of lying in the middle of the road. (laughs) Give us the like short formula for that, please. Just quickly, just quickly
2: explain your method. No pressure.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's super easy. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really funny to get this question today because like I was laying in bed at like 3am because um, I just got the proofs for my third book and I was just laying there going what am I doing like I just felt really terrified and then I woke up this morning and I was like okay newsletter what am I gonna write about and you know, I'm like, and then trying to balance all the, when are the kids going to get home from school? And like, I just started to get in this real spiral of, oh my gosh, there's so much. And so I would love for there to be this easy answer of how to do this, but I often find myself still, still thinking, how the hell do you do this? And how, you know, trying not to get overwhelmed. And I guess the interesting thing was I thought, oh, I'm really looking forward to this podcast. And, chatting to all of you and I guess that's a lot of it isn't it like when you start to feel it all rising and you're thinking I can't hold all of these things you turn to the women in your life and you turn to um, the women that you admire and you turn to your community and other people who know what it's like so yeah I guess I try and turn to those people instead of turning away from everything
2: yeah does that make sense (laughs) Yes, it totally does, and it makes way more sense than, um, I feel like I sometimes do the opposite, and just, like you say, lie in bed in the middle of the night, just like thinking about things over and over again, and then, yeah, I'm quite, I think I uh, try and internalise things a bit more, which isn't very helpful, because I think, like you say, that um, some of that, I guess some of the things that are, you know, what you're working on elicit, like, rage and that kind of thing. You you can actually use that in quite a positive way, eh?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that rage is as powerful tool as anything else um in our sort of activist kitty, so to speak. You know, like we have love and rage together as just the same sides of um, this coin of what fuels us and what powers us with activism. And I think that as women, we're always told to be quieter, to not make a fuss, to not, you know, be so emotional. Don't be hysterical. You know, like I just, I get called hysterical like every single day. It's, you know, one of the favorite words to use for any woman who's angry. But I just feel like you don't have that rage unless you have deep love for people and you don't, you need both of those things. And, you know, I really feel like anger can anger and rage can definitely be destructive force but it can also be a force for good and I definitely think that it has empowered me and it's it, it is through you know you you love hard and it makes you angry when you love your community hard and you see injustice and you love your Fano hard and you know yeah I just think it's a shame that rage has such bad PR <laughs>
3: Well, it does for women. I mean, it's not the same for men, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's really celebrated in men, I think. And I think it's also just really misunderstood. Like my rage isn't, I get angry about stuff, but I'm not going out and, turning that rage into violence I'm using it to keep myself going you know like there are a lot of times where I just think oh what's the fucking point you know and then I just it's the rage that kind of bubbles up that says no I won't you know I've always been someone who has got pissed off about things and I guess I've always been somebody who who can't quite keep all of their emotions in check and I think that as women we get like heaps of shit for that. We get like, you know, you have to be calm, you have to be all of these things, and it's not respectable to cry or be upset or to show that you're really feeling pain for something. But I think that's part of the human experience, and I kind of really want to push against the idea that there's something wrong with being human. And, you know, for a long time with my writing, people would say to me, oh, she needs a thicker skin, she's too thin-skinned, but I really feel like you can only – do the work of being, you know, like a human in this world, a mum. Like, I feel like having a thin skin makes me a good mum. I don't want to be so thick skinned that I can't walk in other people's shoes or understand where they're coming from. So yeah I just think we get like you know you get banged around, you get bruised, but there's healing in community, and to build that community, you really need to be open and trusting of other people, and you need to you know kind of wear your heart on your sleeve, and that's what a lot of activists I think do and just are naturally as human beings
0: um I have a question for you Emily, and excuse me here because um. Was a chainsaw going? Like what I like to do is just really bring the feeling of the suburbs. To Jesus the Christ, podcast. there's
3: never not. If it's not you, a chainsaw, it. it's a it's car a this or week. a dog. The full you're getting the full Toranga experience here, <laughs> Emily.
0: You guys are gonna miss it when I'm gone. You're gonna you're not miss gonna it have so much. Any suburban
3: just shout noise. over the chainsaw.
0: I want to know, Emily. When did you first feel the feminist rage? Like, can you identify the point where the lightning bolt struck you? Yeah,
1: I mean, I love this question. I really like it because I often think I wonder what radicalised you when I look at women who I really, you know, who I see that sort of righteous anger in. And and I think for me, I was raised like in the church and evangelical culture. um, There was quite a lot of purity culture, which is, you know, a lot of shaming about being a woman and, um you know, sexuality and sex and that type of thing. And I had these kind of two sides of the church, this part of like purity culture and, and um, which I really hated this idea that women are just being ready to become mothers and become wives. But there was this other part of the church around service that really spoke to me. So sometimes I think it's a balance of the fact that the church taught me that it's my job to serve the community, but also infuriated me so much that I had to serve the community by rebelling against the church, you know.
0: They taught you too well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they did, yeah. And I think as well the other thing that really got me um, was the Louise Nicholas case like I remember being young I already considered myself a feminist then but that was a real take to the streets moment like I remember when we went and stood outside the police station in Wellington holding candles like all, all of us we were in high school I think and yeah it was this moment I looked around and saw all of these other people and they were, you know, they were crying at the verdict. They were as upset as we were about the injustice of what had happened. And I kind of really felt at home. I was like, these are people who are willing to show that this pain that you feel about things like rape culture is real. You know, this is a real um, pain that we carry as women knowing that other women are so brutalised by this culture that we live in. So I think it was that, I also think it was that I went to um, Wellington High School for a little while and um, it was right near Wellington Hospital and they often had anti abortion protesters and we used to go down there at lunchtime. <laughs> and kind of do a counter protest so I think it was really I was young and it was being around other activists that I kind of went wow this is a thing where you can not just swallow shit down like you if you feel angry you can actually take to the streets you can actually act you can do things to try and change things really because I had felt really like I had no voice. I think like a lot of people with sort of church backgrounds or backgrounds where um, patriarchal roles are really strong, you feel like you don't have a voice. And then suddenly you kind of meet other people and you're around other people and you realize that you do have a voice. And it's like this really exciting, empowering time. And I guess I've never lost that love of being around really passionate people who want to get shit done. Like I find it so inspiring and just incredible when you're around people from communities who have been so shat on and so shat on and so shat on and they still get up and they're like, nah, I'm still going, I'm still fighting. And um, yeah, so that I think that as well in life you kind of get radicalised over and over again, you know, like if you think about, you know, I worked on abortion law reform, I've worked at family planning at other places and done, very, like I've been to God, so many protests about abortion law reform, and then you kind of think, okay, well, that job is pretty okay for now, and then something like Roe v. Wade in the States happen and you're like, okay, okay. <laughs> grab your stuff we're hitting the
2: streets again we're back at again yeah we talk about that earlier in the podcast actually about Roe versus Wade and about how yeah you're like oh finally everything's everything's kind of sorted, and then you're like oh wait a minute no there's you a can't whole take anything for never, granted who never really agreed with me and will probably do everything they can to try and overturn all that work you can't rest but I guess the thing with you, Emily, that I really appreciate, I mean,
3: you know, on the abortion sort of activism, you know, there is a the, there's a body of people out there who are saying, you know, can you just take it out of the Crimes Act? That would be awesome, you know, <laughs> but there's actually a continuum. And you're at the end that says, actually, no, I want more than that. I don't just want it in the Crimes Act. I want it free and I want it available. I want the women on the West Coast to be able to get abortions, you know, places where there's not that service can you talk a bit about like sort of what led you to that point where you are where where you know exactly how far you want to go on all of these issues
1: yeah so I think that like having done this type of work for a long time it at the beginning I was really into this idea that if I could just make people understand then they would you know they would agree we would me in the middle, we would, you know, make things work. We would work together. I believed that ultimately we had this common goal of protecting people and caring for people, this kind of common goal of that people's right to life, their right to health, that type of thing. What I've realised is that they just see me as an extremist no matter what. So if I if I sit in the middle and go, okay, just out of the crimes that can we just kind of, it doesn't matter they still view you as an extremist if you want abortion out of the Crimes Act. So why not just say what you really want, which is that we have abortion freely available, accessible to every single person who wants it because that's what I really want. And I've realised over time that your view will always be considered extreme if you're a woman and you have a view. So there isn't actually this point of trying to placate, mostly men, let's be honest, but trying to placate these people who are never ever going to view what you're saying as, you know, they're never going to meet you in the middle. They're never going to care about you. They're never going to want to understand your point of view. So why bother? Why speak to them? Why not just say, this is the reality, this is what we want. Because I think when you look at Roe versus Wade, you have, in the States, the reason why I think, and this is, you know, just the view of a, you know, geriatric activist from New Zealand. But I think that over there, they have this thing where they're going, oh, right is no abortion, left is abortion right until birth, you know, those type of things. And it's like, it was never that for anybody on the left. And so I think, you know, if we're going to try and stop that dichotomy happening in New Zealand, we have to just be honest about what we want. And you can say abortion is legal in New Zealand, but if you're still jumping through so many hoops and you have to catch a bus from Wanganui, or um, you know, then it's not available. Abortion is not available. So, I think we do a lot of things, like we say, "Oh, I'm, I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro-choice." But I'm pro-abortion. I love abortion. I think it's an amazing thing, and I think that we need to get more into that side of things instead of trying to placate people who will never ever see. They'll never change their view. They'll never um, meet in the middle and they'll never show care for women.
0: Don't you think it's also just like a massive waste of time? Like there's so many people out there who try, just like kind of won the argument. Like you know how you were saying about they're never going to listen. It's so easy to get sucked into that, right? And then you're wasting your own energy. Yeah, and it's just hugely demoralizing because you can
1: spend half a day really trying to explain like, 101 reproductive rights to somebody and you can do all of that. And then they still, at the end of the day, go, well, I don't care. You're murdering babies. And it's like, you've just spent all that time that could have been spent writing to MPs, you know, trying to organise fundraisers to get these women able to have time off work. You know, all the actual mahi of activism is really lost when people try and turn it, like try and spend all their time making us, you know, convince them of something that they're just not going to care about. And when we sit there and do, you know, I've seen this meme going around a lot on abortion, which is like, I support Becky who's 11 years old and needed to have an abortion and I support, and it's got all these reasons for abortion that people might morally decide is okay, like rape or incest or uh, sexual abuse, all those things. And it's kind of like if all you're doing is encouraging people to decide whether women should be allowed to have a termination, how did we get to that point? The job isn't just in saying it's none of your fucking business, you know. And if you come in, and people say this to me all the time, oh, you come in too hot. You come in too hot coming in going, oh, it's women can have any fucking abortion they want. I don't care. You do your own thing. It's not my body. But the thing is, how can we not start doing that when we've got all this wishy-washy bullshit in the middle, which isn't actually useful? Or Is this a process for you? It's not, I just don't feel like it's useful. I just feel like no matter what, if I didn't ever swear, if I held everybody's hand and spent hours saying to them, I totally, I know you think it's murdering babies, but please, could my uterus be mine? Would that be all right? You know, it's like, that's not going to change shit and it's just going to make me feel crap and it's going to make me exhausted and demoralized. So kind of what's the point? I'm like, we're allowed to be, outraged by this and I think that that outrages the power in it. it it should absolutely we're being like gaslit if we believe that women should not be absolutely fucking horrified by this development like it is completely human and normal to be horrified by the idea that old white men are deciding what happens with another human being's body but we kind of get gaslit into this idea that, oh, it's not, this is just one of those things, you know, and let's try and all be reasonable, let's all try and discuss it. It's not reasonable, it's a war,
2: it's an attack. Has this been over time, have you learned sort of that the way that you go about things is, I I suppose, how have you learned that that's the best way? And also, how have you sort of protected yourself from you know, all those attacks and from not, like, completely burning out and that kind of thing? Like, what what have you done for yourself to get yourself in a place where you're able to continue, I guess?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's the best way, <laughs> but it's certainly the only way that I can manage to be myself online is to not kind of tie myself in knots being respectable. But I think... You know, the truth is that it has, like, it has fucked me up over the years. You know, I had, like, a big breakdown over, you know, turfs going after me and how aggressive that was and the doxing going after my kids. I found that incredibly hard. I found it really hard how... You know, you can go to NetSafe, you can go to the police and be like, this person is saying they're going to come to my kid's school or they're going to attack me or they're going to shoot me. And, you know, and nothing happens. And you feel really like, I think as well, as a mother, I had, you know, when I had a big breakdown a couple of years back, I had this moment where I was just like, wow, you brought all of this into your home. You know, I felt really like I'd brought all these people who wanted me dead, into my home, and I had to sit down with my husband and be like, they've said what, where the kids are at school. I had to go to my kids' school and say to the principal, these people online uh, have come after, you know, said they're going to come to the school gate. was trying to figure out security at home. I had someone say where I walk my dog, so I had to stop walking my dog, you know, and I had this real thing of I did all of this and I achieved Nothing in terms of changing, you know, changing the way systems are in place and that type of thing. And I had a real, it took me a really long time to recover from that. Like I have never been so low in my whole life and, you know, I had to take two months off work and when your work is like being public and you're a freelancer, so you don't get paid, you know, and it was an incredibly traumatic thing for my family, for all of us to go through that. But I don't know, you just, I think you just keep going because you can't not. Like, I think you just keep going because it's just in your DNA. I don't know if we have a choice not to fight for things like climate change and stuff. When you have kids running around playing on the trampoline, how do you look at them and not go, fuck, we've got work to do, you know? So I guess I have my little moments where I have a cry and I make my husband give me a cuddle and I you know cuddle my dog and my cat and then I just kind of put on my big girl panties and get back to work you know like it's hard I don't think that there's an easy answer and I wish that there was but it's just the work you know is it
3: easier since you've changed you've changed to Substack which yeah what is Substack it's like an online platform slash newsletter
1: It is infinitely easier since I've gone to Substack because I have realized after time that this work is actually work that people value and will pay for. It was a lot harder in the last six years of doing this when I wasn't being paid to do it. And so I had a normal job. I had a normal day job. I was exhausted. I was looking after the two kids. Eddie was in hospital a lot. So I was working sort of during the day, then spending all night in the hospital and stuff like that. So it's a million times easier now that people have gone, oh, I'm going to flick seven bucks a month Emily's way to get her to keep doing, you know, whatever this is that I do. So it's a million times better. And it also allows me to kind of have this community that is pretty pure in terms of, I love the community I have on Facebook and Instagram, but you are talking to, you'll be having a really serious conversation with a mum about, you know, my baby won't stop crying and I'm really struggling. I'm feeling like I can't cope anymore. And then the next comment will be some guy being like, I hope you choke on a dick. And you're like, oh, I need you to just back off for a minute. while we, you know, (laughs) so it's like I, I love how SubSec it just doesn't have those men because they won't pay to tell me to choke on a dick. <laughs> the market regulates. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yay capitalism. And if they wanna pay me seven bucks a month, they can tell me to choke on a dick because I just will do I'll do it for seven bucks a month. Yeah, I do it for um, seven bucks. Just be sure. told that I yeah. won't actually, you know, fucking do it. <laughs>
0: So, I'm sure there's like some fetish somewhere that somebody's worked out and already started at OnlyFans. Like if you want to abuse someone, <laughs> go and do it over there.
1: That's what I should do. I should start in OnlyFans for all those active owners to just go hard. And
3: people can be given it as like birthday presents and Christmas <laughs> presents. But, but Emily, to, like to be serious and just to go back to Michelle's question, it kind of sounds like it's been such a progression for you. You know, like it's been a hard one. A lot of this knowledge and boundaries and all the rest of it. And I I found it kind of heartbreaking you know, when you were saying, I brought this into my home, you know, like, and I think it says something about, like, it's, it's about the internet, isn't it? Like, and it's about the ways in which sort of w- women can be online, because, it, you, you know, and this is something that's come up in the course of the um, series, you know, we had Goldriss Garaman, who was talking about just that very act of her being, you know, like, and being a visible person, a visible woman of colour and an MP is in to people
1: yeah I think when I first started doing this you know it was so sudden and I had a three week old baby it wasn't intentional and I think the sheer number of people reading my stuff I mean at the beginning it was like just usual sort of pieces would be read by 500,000 odd people from all around the world. And I couldn't get into my email because there were so many. And I think that it was just this aspect of lots of people read your stuff or I'm seeing your stuff everywhere. And just that infuriates me. Like I, I know that that sounds very simplified, but I really felt like that was the case. Because the I don't think that the things I was saying were particularly controversial then. Like I was quite a tired mum then. Like now I would say that the things I say are pretty. That's me. Like in the early days, people used to joke that it was socialism by stealth. Now I'm just like openly. <laughs> everybody needs a home. Everyone, you know, all the, all the things. Um, but I think in in the beginning I had to become used to waking up every morning and having people say they hate me like as a first thing before you've even finished your first coffee and I don't think any human being is able to cope with the idea that people hate them and just really hate them and hate them and so many people hate them you know like that I couldn't be in mum's groups I couldn't be on any online groups whatsoever on or you know because people would just be like, oh, I hate her, I hate Emily Wrights and all this, and I was just kind of like, I didn't know how to let that, you know, it, it just confused me and stressed me, and I don't, and I think I tried to make sense of it, but I don't think we ever can make sense of that thing, and it comes back, like, I'm in a much, I'm much stronger now. I've had a lot of therapy to help me with my confidence and that type of thing. But I don't think that there's any, there's no roadmap to dealing with this. And I, I really worry about women writers who, uh, you know, have, every time a piece goes viral for somebody, I know I message them and say, "Are you doing okay?" Because I know that it's actually the worst thing, because you then get all of this aggression and all of this hatred. And, yeah, I think I still struggle, like, today. Like, I I mean, my son has type 1 diabetes and I can't be in the type 1 diabetes groups because there's, like, I was in one and this woman was like, oh, is this Emily Wright? It's this kid. I hate her guts. And I was just like, oh, come on, can I just have one space? I just really need to know how you're doing carb counting. And, you know, and you just have this place where you're like, you don't earn enough to be a celebrity. Like, I mean, you know how celebrities are kind of incubated by their wealth. I'm not. I'm a freelancer at home just doing my best and I'm having to, or, you know, it bleeds out. It's at the kindy gate, somebody saying to you as you're about to pick up your kid, Oh, I read what you said. And you're like, I just think people are really struggling with the world. And, They want to control things and understand things, and so they can't accept when other people have a really different view to them on something, and so they have to lash out. You know, my husband said to me once, oh, like they think that you're like the rock, and I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, you know in wrestling how there's people that you boo and people that you cheer, and he's like that's what they think that it's like. They're just, it's about Emily Wrights. It's not about you. That's
3: interesting, like the persona.
2: Yeah, that's so true. You're, they don't think yeah. of you as a human being with emotions. Who's but people like, do yeah, that to yeah, you and yeah. Kirsty yeah. as well, Michelle, because you know, like, you're
1: journalists. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's the internet, eh, creating this gap.
1: Yeah, and he said to me, it's like they think that you're not real. And I also think that they probably don't see that, you see this stuff, you know, like I thought it was really interesting when David Ferry um, was replying to like his trolls. And I sent him an email saying, Oh, this is really interesting because when I've tried to do this, I haven't had the same response as you. They've just gone full hundies on me. Do you think that's gendered? And I said to him, I do think it's gendered. The reason why I think it's gendered is when I've done this, I've not had the reactions that he has, but when I've said, okay, so you won't mind me sharing your DMs with my audience? And then suddenly they've gone, oh, I didn't mean it like that. Oh, I just meant that I don't really agree with you. Or I, you know, oh, and then it's, I got hacked. Oh, I've got a family, you know? And I think to me, it's kind of like, it always ends up with them saying, I didn't think you would read it. And I don't know whether to take that at face value. Do
3: they think you have like a personal assistant? Yeah. And or I,
1: like someone who does that? Yeah. And I don't know whether to believe that or not because I don't believe they get hacked every
0: time either. But... Yeah, I think it's so um it's so weird because I've noticed if I reply to abusive emails saying there's no need to talk to someone like that. People are like, Oh my god, I'm sorry. Or if you reply, they're like, Oh my god, thank you so much for replying to me. And I'm like, How many emails are you sending and to who that aren't getting replied to? Like it's just this like, what are they doing? Find another way to channel
2: your emotions. Like Kirsty, you sent a great one the other day to me that you had um It was amazing. You had been, they were so rude to you and you basically were like, I'm sorry, is this the kind of email that you send to everyone? This is completely inappropriate. Please do not address me in this manner again. Do you send this to your auntie? Is this what you say?
1: (laughs) I can imagine that. I think it's really interesting as well that like I've had an email. I was going through like various, my emails for the morning, a whole bunch of them were shitty and blah, blah. And one of them I replied to saying, i just fuck off. And they sent it to my editor to different people and all that going, oh, look at how she reacted in that. And then I actually had people saying, oh, you can't talk to people like this. And I was like, actually, we fucking can like I try and have as much empathy as I can but also I feel really strongly that if these people saw me in the street they would shit bricks before they would say anything to me
3: but this is the point of the internet isn't it and I mean I think it's yeah. Jimmy Kimmel who actually made this point like in the old days like back in the day if you had a problem with something you read in the paper or something you saw on tv you had to write a letter like you had to write a letter to the editor or to the you know to whoever they were and that was a kind of a form of self-selecting like you had to go and buy the paper and buy the stamp and blah 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 now you can literally do it in seconds you know with no effort whatsoever you can just bash out whatever you want and send it to like a dehumanized version of the person as you both were saying so you know that to me explains why there's so much of it and why it's so horrible in part because you know anyone can do it at any time. I think
1: as well that People don't understand that this is real life repercussions to having this relentless abuse for a really long time. So, like, I had a full breakdown from it and had to go to hospital. It was a really difficult time for my family. My sister had to come over from Australia to help my children and my husband and all that stuff. It was like a terrible time for our family and it took me a really long time to recover. But the other thing that it did was make me feel like I don't want to write another book. It's taken me until now to write a book and I'm terrified. I don't have the same excitement that I did ahead of my first book or my second book. I'm mainly just really scared and I think I it reminds me of this story when I was at a writers festival and I and you know Dame Fiona Kidman was there and I like am just totally obsessed with her I adore her and I had been to a couple of festivals that she'd been at and people would often joke about how um, she used to be called Filthy Fiona after one of her books came out and after the event Fiona and I went to have a cup of tea and I said to her. I'm so sorry that people called you Filthy Fiona. That must have hurt so much. And she said, Oh, you're the only one who's kind of said that because it's always been told as this really funny story that she used to be called, like interviewers would often say it is this funny thing that she used to be called Filthy Fiona. And she talked about what that felt like then and the heat of that attention ahead of writing another book. And You know, it was so meaningful for me connecting with this other writer who, you know, had written this book that was so formative for me when I was in high school. And here she was, had gone through the same thing that so many of us are going through now. And she said to me, you have to write another book. You have to keep going. And I think of Fiona so much with, you know, this book stuff because I sit there going, oh the male reviewers are going to tear me to shreds you know and I hear Fiona's voice and I'm just like you have to keep going you know and this is the same with I guess everything we do it's like there isn't this option to sort of give up because our kids are watching the people that we you know somebody's looking at each of us and Looking for something, some kind of guidance, and we might be completely ill equipped to give it or anything, but we can walk together on, on this journey, you know. And I think that's, I guess the idea is just that giving up isn't really an option. We just keep going. What I love what you said about Fiona Kidman is like, now she's Dame
3: Fiona Kidman, you know, and she's and she's acknowledged and everybody understands the contribution she's made. And I think it's so illuminating for you to point out like how hard it was for her at the time, you know, and how shaming, you know, imagine being called filthy Fiona. Like that's that's just, you know, it would never happen to a male writer, I don't think. You
0: know? Do you know, I was thinking, Emily, it's such a burden for you though, you know, how you were saying people look to you for something like it's such a burden like it's like who's qualified to carry that yeah
1: I mean I really think that it probably speaks to just how bad our maternal health system is a mental health system and just how little support mothers have that someone like me is getting hundreds of messages every day asking for help and you know I spent a lot of time going don't like really worrying that I was somebody that somebody might look up to because I'm such a mess myself but then I realized that it's not about looking up to somebody it's about if you've given space for people to I want people to know that I will hold space for them and I will walk with them if I can and once I realized that it's not about looking up to somebody it's not about being perfect like I don't have to be perfect um I don't have to do everything right. Once I realised that, it kind of helped a bit more. Now I know that what I can do when a mother messages me and says, please help me, I'm really struggling. I can, you know, do what little I can in the same way that anybody else can. I think it's a bit harder when there's a bit of a context collapse, when it's outside of my Instagram or Facebook or emails or something like that, I find it hard when people will pull out like one thing I've said on a podcast or in a radio interview and then say, you know, how can she say that she's, you know, this or that? And and it's just kind of like, oh, I'm just human. I just say dumb shit sometimes. Like we all say real dumb shit sometimes, you know, and I think that my audience is very forgiving of saying dumb shit. But it's the people outside of my audience who are just pretty, sometimes I feel like it's a bit wolves lying in wait. But I do have like a a sign up in my little office now that just says, I don't write for you. And I try really hard to just look at that. I'm like, I don't write for these people. I'm not here for these people. I'm here for this little part of the world and this little community of people who we are there for each other and we show up for each other and that's what I'm trying to do. And yeah, but it's a it's definitely an everyday thing of saying to myself, you can't be everything to everyone and you've got to, I mean, I go to therapy every week. You, I've got to go to therapy or else I'm not like, I've really learned that, I have to work hard on my mental health because, yeah, this is it. It's not really what I chose to do with my life, but it is where my life has gone. And so um, I'll do the best with what I've been given. And I, I will do what I can with the responsibility of having a platform, you know.
2: It's a calling, Emily. It's a calling, <laughs> it's a vocation. <laughs> I just want to say, Emily, that I know the impact that you have on on your community and particularly for mothers and parents who are struggling. I mean, I read many of your articles when I was sort of sitting in the dark, crying, trying to breastfeed my small child, you know, and I know for you it's sort of hard sometimes to quantify that impact, but... You know, I think personally, if your words can reach like one person who's like sitting there lonely in the dark, then, you know, surely that's kind of makes you feel has a little heartwarming effect, makes you want to keep going.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, I'm so lucky to have so many people who are so kind about my writing. And, you know, I think that the greatest thing about the newsletter is it's been like a really tangible thing of like people like what I do I haven't you know there's it's pretty clear when people are willing to give you money that they like what you're doing and so that has been a really big confidence booster for me it's why I decided to do the book because I was like well if if people are willing to pay to read my work each week and to support me to continue to do that work then maybe I should you know, maybe there is worth in it. Maybe there is value in it. And I hate that as somebody who hates capitalism, but also <laughs> it is true that sometimes money is a big, um,
3: yeah. Well, that's the system we have, isn't it? Like, that's yeah, the,
1: it is the
3: illusion agreed upon.
1: Yeah, and I think just the fact that that I have the space now which is safer and people pay um, to support me to write. Um, it has changed a lot of things. It's made me think, oh yeah, this what I have done has made a small difference in the lives of, of people and that makes it worth doing. For a long time, this type of writing about women, um, particularly about mothering, about parenting, has been been considered fluff and worthless and therefore it's not paid well and you know I I had people call it saying you know oh the silly little blog when it was the number one blog in New Zealand for a period you know where or when you know people kind of calling other people a columnist or an opinion writer and I was always a mummy blogger you know and I think that I saw so many women working under that who were the best writers I've ever read in my life, and now they don't write at all. And people can't name them and they don't get to read their stuff, and it's such a huge loss. And I think, you know, I hope that's changing, but I also think that it's only really changing because people can directly say, I'm paying for this content and i'm I'm supporting this content. Um, because, yeah, it makes me sad thinking about how parenting is one of the most political things that we do in our lives and yet it's never seen as such and people aren't allowed to talk about the politics of it without it being reduced to this is fluff, this is mummy blogging, this is you know, essential mums, kind of, like, that type of thing. I think that's really sad.
2: Like, how many of my features that I've written about parenting have been put in the life and style section? Mm. Just, like, (laughs) by Like, that's where they go. Like yeah off
1: to the pink part when I was writing for the Herald and stuff it was like it was the same having stuff in there and then having you know you might also like news talk hosts these mums and yoga pants are pathetic you know like yoga pants
0: yeah it's like fucking yoga, yoga pants, pants. <laughs> This is touching a very raw nerve for Kirsty. Banner is a genre,
3: yoga pants talk.
1: Yeah, it's it's just that thing of like the... And and you get to
3: choose as well. You get to choose the platform and where it is and how it's presented.
1: I do, and that makes all the difference. And it's a huge privilege to be able to do that. And it's taken, you know, six years to be able to do that. But I really do think all the time about the voices that... That incredible writers I know who now aren't, you know, I'm I'm doing lots of Substack um, workshops for women, like every uh, every couple of weeks, trying to get more women on Substack and more people writing about, you know, writing those sort of personal essays and the you know the personal is political, all that stuff. I I think it's really important, especially you know when our bodies are a battleground now.
3: Yeah, something as basic as bodily autonomy is in, is in jeopardy.
1: Yeah, we have to use everything we can to fight against it. Thank you so much, Emily, for coming in. Oh, thank you so much. I hope I didn't ramble too much. I was just kind of all over the place there. So.
3: No, you're on forum.
1: That's the vibe. Rants in the Dark.
3: we're not apologizing in this episode we're not apologizing for anything we're not accepting any apologies we're not making any (laughs) apologies this is where we're at
1: brilliant yeah no apologies no we just yeah keep going (laughs) so yeah but no it was lovely it's always lovely to talk to all of you and to you know I love the podcast so
3: Thank you for your support, Yay. and thank you for supporting yeah. us thank the whole you. way through. And I hope your proofs go really well. I hope it's a fast and happy process.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, we can't wait to read it. What's yeah. the name? Of your, what's the name of your book, Emily? It's called Needs Adult Supervision. Brilliant. Ooh. Yeah, it's good because it's got like the kit. The title is like Emily writes Needs Adult Supervision, <laughs> so um, I really
0: like it. And that was Emily Wright, our very last guest. Sob. (laughs) Who's uh, an inspiration, to be honest. Um, And if you don't
2: follow her work, please go and do that now. Only $7 a month, I heard. Substack. (laughs) Now that we know all about that platform. If we've learned nothing else. Look, I think listening to her really, for me, it brought home some of the things we've learned over the course of the series and, you know, that we were talking about earlier, which is that, to get systemic change, you need so community, you know, like a weight of numbers. And yeah, it, can't, it doesn't take just one person. I can't believe I didn't know that, but I
3: didn't. Yeah, it was like Sonia Renee, remember when she was t- we were talking about fat activism and that was one of the first things she said about community. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Michelle. I think the other thing I've learned is that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the people we've talked to have been survivors of traumatic things and painful things and unfair things. And I guess what I've learned is that if that happens, you you are allowed to respond however you want. Like, you don't have to... We have these narratives, don't we, in society that say you have to be a certain way, like you have to be noble or brave or learn from it or whatever. You actually don't. And I think both of you have definitely... Shown me that as well in the way you report these things. Oh.
2: Mm.
0: what do you learn? Thanks. What do you learn, Kirsty? I mean, speaking of trauma, I feel like the most confronting thing I learned is what a sweep is. <laughs> remember when? Remember <laughs> when late. <laughs> When Lacey told us how someone put three fingers in her vagina to help begin labour. Oh, my God. Lacey, who had a baby for her friends.
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, the amount of fingers you have in your vagina... At different points in your life. (laughs) What? Actually, Noelle, I was about to say when
0: you were (laughs) in labour. I thought you were just talking about your experiences in fielding in the 1990s. I reckon
3: my point still stands. (laughs) I feel like I can't stop talking, Christy, until another
0: plane... Flies by your house. Yeah, one actually did just fly by. Oh, that's good. why I was quiet for so long because I had myself on mute is I didn't want to subject the listeners to one last jet stream.
2: You know, Kirstie would be talking at least 30% more. She wasn't in a flight path. If I
3: didn't live in the suburbs. I reckon if we do another series, we should actually do it in the airport. <laughs> you know, I think that's like... <laughs> the sonic texture that people have come to expect from us. Yeah, I'll miss you both very much. Thank you for upskilling me and for all the things you've taught me. Um, it's
0: been amazing. It's been awesome. And I would also like to thank the, the listeners and to everyone else um, at our workplaces who've supported us doing this challenging work. We've all learned so much. We've learned so much.
3: <laughs> Still learning. Still learning. Thank you. Yeah. Kakite ano matewa. Kakite. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Tell me about it is made for stuff by Bird of Paradise Productions. It was produced by me, Noelle McCarthy, and written by me, Kirsty Johnston, and Michelle Duff. Our script supervisor is Eugene Bingham, and thanks to Janine Fenwick and Eugene for editorial oversight, mixed by Mark Chesterman. And our theme tune is Queenie Queenie by Tammy Nielsen, our queen. You can like the podcast and leave a review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me about it. is made possible by funding from New Zealand on air.
1: Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby, cradling on. Queenie, Queenie.